Good morning. Now, there are a few things that uh, even after a year of living in Colorado Springs uh, make me an outlier still. I'm going to share with you probably my most embarrassing one. I am not much of a camper. Now, I know, I know, I know. People are like, oh, and I respected you, right? Uh, And it it really goes back. I know we live in a camping culture, right? People tell me all the time about the places they go and the fun they have and the pictures they take and all of that. And that's great. Some of you even have uh, a tent platform on your SUV or on your truck so that if on the way to work you decide, I'd rather camp than work, you can just do it right out on 25. It doesn't matter. You, You are ready to camp. Well, here's why I struggle with it. When I was in high school, in college, every time I went camping, it rained, every time. And one of these occasions, while I was in college with a few buddies, we were going down a big gulch, a big ravine, you know, with mountains on either side, or what we called mountains on the East Coast anyway. And uh, we were about a half day into our hike with our packs, with our tents, with everything else. And the sky was blue and the weather was perfect. And we said, who needs to carry these tents down through this gulch? Let's leave them and we'll come back and get them on the way back. And so we just took a sleeping bag and a few items uh, to eat. Well, that evening we found a nice place uh, to camp on top of this flat rock uh, right beside a stream. And it was, so there we are in, in our, our little sleeping bags. Mine probably I had left over from my fourth grade sleepover days. And uh, the rain is pouring down. And I don't know that I have ever prayed for death or mourning, whichever came first, uh, more enthusiastically than I did because I knew I was on top of a rock that there was no way down in the dark without breaking your neck. And so I was just stuck there. The next morning we got up at uh, the break of dawn And what was funny is I glanced over just about 20 feet from the rock and there was a covered area where rock had come out that was perfectly dry. (laughs) You know, Paul here in Galatians chapter 4 is trying to help people understand that you are so close but yet you are not enjoying the reality of all that God has for you. It's as though, spiritually speaking, you're on the rock getting soaked when there is a covered dry area right within reach. And so I want us to look at this unrealized potential. Secondly, I want us to look at a timely rescue, and then, rather redundantly, and I couldn't think of a better way to say it, I want us to understand a realized reality that Paul talks about. So those are the three things we're going to talk about. First of all, an unrealized uh, potential. We see that here in the text when Paul uses an analogy. He says, basically, continuing to try to obey the elements of the law is like someone who has already inherited a giant estate. Someone who, technically speaking, is immensely wealthy, but they're still a minor. 
You see, in the Roman world, it would not be uncommon if someone inherited uh, land and property and all of the rest, uh, that they would have someone overseeing them as a guardian until they were 14 and as a steward until they were 25 years old. Now, we don't know whether Paul has that specifically in mind, but he has that idea. Someone who already has been given a fortune, but is not able to enjoy it at all because they're still a minor. He says, that's what you're like. That's what you're like, he says, when you are still following what the ESV translates as the elementary principles of the world. Now, uh, there's much ink spilt about what exactly the elementary principles are. Paul only uses this expression uh, one other time in the book of Colossians, and it means either the sort of ABCs of reality or perhaps uh, borrowing from Greek thought, the elements that make up uh, the universe, they believe that it would have been air and earth and fire and water. Those could have been the elementary principles or it could have been referring to the spiritual realities that the people in that day thought were behind all of those elemental realities. We don't exactly know what Paul was referring to, but we do know where he's going with it. What he's saying is, if you have heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you are still following basic principles, whether of the Jewish law or the law of the world you grew up in or the law you have created in your own mind, you are like someone immensely wealthy who has no access to all that you can enjoy in that wealth. You are just like, he says, a slave. The son who is still under the guardian or still under the steward has no more freedom than a slave in the household. They are living far below their potential. They're still on the rainy rock instead of being in the dry overhang where they can enjoy all that is there for them. That's what Paul wants us to understand. That's helpful for us. Now, in some ways, this is a review of what Paul has already been saying in Galatians chapter three. And so this is a good good review stage. We don't want to actually be unrealized in our potential. We don't want to leave the enjoyment of all of God's grace and wealth on the table. We don't want to be like a slave. We want to be like a true son. And then Paul says, how can we know that it really is ours? How can we know that this isn't just a figment of our imagination, wishful thinking? How do we know that this wealth can really be ours? Well, he talks about a timely rescue. Notice how he talks about it. In fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I'll tell you, I love all the times in scripture uh, where we get a good but, right? When you get a good one thing could be true, but God has intervened and now something else could be true, right? You know, we often will do that uh, whenever we're trying to surprise our children uh, with that uh, trip to Disney World on Christmas morning. Maybe some of you have done something like this. I don't know. Maybe people in Colorado don't go to Disney World. We're probably closer to Disneyland or some other less politically controversial amusement park. (laughs) Pick whatever you want. 
you know, and, uh, you know, the kids come down and there are not very many presents under the tree. And, and, and parents, they, I don't know why we always feel like we can lie on Christmas morning, right? Uh, a lie just doesn't count on Christmas morning, right? Oh, mom and dad, we, didn't, we don't have much money. We weren't able to buy very many presents, you know. I'm sorry, it's not going to be all that exciting. And then they go, but we're getting on a plane and going to Disney World, right? You know, and uh, I, I, I like that. Everyone's looking at me like, that has never happened in my life. <laughs> oh, sorry about that. Uh, maybe you can do that for someone else uh, in your life. We love those buts that change the situation. This looks like the reality. This is the way we tend to live. But then a new reality. Yes, we do tend to live under those elemental principles, uh, those stoika uh, in the original language. We live under them. We let them oppress us. We let them discourage us. We let them dictate our significance and worth. We let them determine whether we will have joy in that day based on how well we have matched up to those elementary principles. We live that way, but there could be a different reality. Why? Because there is a timely rescue. I like the way he says it. But when the fullness of time had come, now people love to talk about this and they say, well, it makes perfect sense why Jesus came when he did. I mean, you're in the middle of the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. Uh, roads had been built all over the entire uh, Western and Eastern world. There was relative peace. Of course, if you agreed with the Romans, if you didn't, there was constant war. Uh, but there was a common monetary system. There was a common language, all of that. And they say, well, that must be what it means when the fullness of time, uh, what does that mean? Well, it, certainly looking back, we can say the timing was perfect. God certainly used the circumstances of the day. But when Paul uses the expression, the fullness of time, he means when God's appointed time had come. That's the fullness of time. The fullness of time is when God knew it was best. And you know what? We live in that world. I like the, the hymn we uh, re, uh, reintroduced here this morning. I had that whole uh, uh, verse about when uh, my, my tongue is lying dead in the grave. And I was sitting there thinking, I was thinking to myself, that's a weird verse, uh, right? You know, to, to keep singing over and over, you know, when my tongue lies in the grave, when my tongue lies in the grave. I'm like, this is a depressing chorus, right? You know, but you know what? It's not for a believer. Because what we believe is that we're going to keep doing our life. We're going to keep living under uh, the direction of God, under his providence, under his kindness, under his mercy, until the fullness of time for our life. When this life is over. And when my stammering tongue is lying in the grave. In other words, I am living inside of God's perfect plan for my life. And in God's perfect plan, he brought timely rescue. Timely rescue. Don't you love the way he says it? Some people believe that this fits together so beautifully that it almost sounds like some confessional statement of the early church. Uh, I think if it was a confessional statement of the early church, it's because Paul wrote it and put it right here in his letter to Galatians. He says, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. Let's break that down for a second. First of all, it says that God sent his son. 
The fact that God sent his son means that his son, Jesus Christ, uh, lived for all eternity past. Uh, the technical term is that he was pre-existent, that he had always been. But in the fullness of time, God said, Jesus, you have a job to do. And he sent him. He sent him into the world. And what a great encouragement that is. I think sometimes when we think about Jesus, uh, we certainly, and, and I think appropriately, think about all that he did in his earthly ministry. We need to do that. The four gospels are recounting that story for us so that we can savor it, so that we can uh, dwell on it, so that we can grow from it, learn from it. All of that is true. But what's great about Jesus is that's not the beginning of the story. Jesus has no beginning to his story. He has always been. He was there before the creation of the world. Through him was everything created that was made. Uh, and in him all things hold together. I love what the Bible says about Jesus the Son. It says that he was sent. The eternal, joyful, satisfied, eternal Son of God was sent. Why? Why in the world would he come? Well, it gets better. It says that he's born of a woman. That means that he becomes a normal human being. He becomes a normal human being. How many of you were born of a woman? Just out of curiosity. It's funny that not all of you raised your hands. Were, were some of you not born of a woman? I mean, I know we're confused about things these days, but I'm pretty sure that's the way you get into this world. You are born of a woman. You're born of a woman. That's how you get here. That's how Jesus got here. And when we see that, what we see is Jesus did not become just kind of like us. He became like us. And he understands and sympathizes with the reality of being a born of a woman type person in this fallen world. He knows exactly what that's like in every possible way, except without sin. But Paul gets to that. He says he was born under a woman. That means he's truly human. He experiences all that we do. And it says that he's born under the law. He's born under the law. What does that mean? That means that he was born in a situation that required him, just like us, to live in a way that reflects the glory of God. He was born under the law. He should live in relationship with him. He was born under that. And unlike us, he fulfilled that law perfectly. He did everything that it commanded. He avoided everything it forbade. And at the end of his life, he actually fulfilled the law in terms of the consequence of not living up to that standard. The consequence of not living up to that standard, being under the law, is that you take the consequence of failing the law, of breaking the law. And he does that. He does it on a cross where he bears the penalty that not giving God glory deserves, not obeying the law deserves, he becomes a sacrifice for those who have broken the law. He was under the law and fulfilled it both positively and negatively in every possible way. Why? Why in the world would the eternally preexistent son of God be sent to this world and live like one of us 
under all of the obligation of under the law. In other words, we've looked at this term before. Redeem is a word from the slave market. It's a word that means to pay the price for the freedom of an individual, to purchase them. It says that this pre-existent son of God was born just like us under the law to fulfill the law so that the price could be paid so you could be free. I think Paul loves this word redemption because he's always dealing with Christians who aren't free. They're not free. They're not living free. They still act like they're under the elementary, elementary principles of the world. They still live like they're living under the law. And he says, no, Jesus did that so that you could be free. The price is paid. Freedom has been given. And more than that, it'd be one thing to be free. He goes a step further. Not only has it redeemed those under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. That word is literally that we might receive sonship. Common thing. I mentioned about this uh, last time we were together. That in the Roman world, this was a fairly common thing. I mentioned to you uh, the old famous uh, Julius Caesar. He had a grand nephew that he adopted. His name was Octavian. He later was more famously known as Caesar Augustus. And even though he wasn't his direct heir, Caesar adopted him, Julius Caesar that is, adopted him, and he got all of his honor, all of his wealth. As a matter of fact, he spent it quite liberally to become Caesar Augustus, but that's a different story. In other words, he was adopted. He, he had all the rights and privileges of being the kid of the most powerful person in the Roman Empire. But here's the beauty if you have heard the story of Jesus about his perfect human life, his death on the cross, his resurrection from the dead, if you have heard that and you have said, I am going to trust in him, I'm gonna trust him. I'm, I, I'm not gonna trust myself. I'm not gonna trust my efforts, my works, my, my accomplishments. I'm not gonna trust what other people think about me. I'm gonna put my trust purely in Jesus. It says that he has redeemed you and he has given you that sonship. That sonship, yeah, it was a great thing to be the adopted son of Julius Caesar, but it is a far better thing to be the adopted son of God himself, to have all of the wealth and privileges of God at your disposal. Do you hear the language? Paul is trying to emphasize the immense magnitude of the blessings that come through this timely rescue. I love it. Now, how are we doing so far? How are we doing? Now, most of you are like, yeah, so far you haven't said anything I disagree with. About 12 of you are saying, I haven't agreed with anything you've said, right? If you're one of those, well, thanks for being here. I really appreciate it. Uh, I mean, we need a world where we can sit and talk to people we disagree with. That's the kind of world we need to have. So if you're here and you disagree with me, thank you. Keep coming. Come up and talk to me. Tell me you disagree with me. I mean, not right after the sermon, people. Come on, give me a second. You know, but no, I, I, I love those conversations. I think most people who grew up in the church or maybe people who've come to faith later in life, they say, yeah, everything you've said so far, I, I'm down with that, you know? I, I don't want to be like a slave. You know, I don't want to be still living under some kind of law or principle or elementary things of any kind. I, I, I want to be free. I want to enjoy the full benefits of the son. And I know I can, at least mentally, I know I can because of who Jesus is and what he's done for me. Okay, that's great. That is a place you need to start. 
You need to understand mentally that you can't do it yourself, but that Jesus did it for you, that he offers redemption and sonship, full adoption, that's great. But the Apostle Paul wants the Galatians to go another step. Tim Keller, the pastor who pastored for many years in Manhattan, he did a beautiful job of, of illustrating that what Paul has talked about to this point is the objective reality that we've experienced of that in our hearts. In other words, I can, we always say in the preacher world, we have all these little cliches that we throw out there every now and then. Uh, you know, one is that the distance between your brain and your heart is only about 12 to 14 inches. Uh, but in reality, it takes an awful long time to get there. And as a Christian, we can often have these realities about who Jesus is and what he's done for us and the redemption he purchased and the sonship he offers. And we can have it up here, but it, but it doesn't get down to our heart. Our heart is, uh, biblically speaking, the seed of our thinking and our feelings, and it is the driving force of our life. And we need that reality here to here. We need that reality to be our operating principle, right? We need it to work for us, not simply be theoretical, right? And so what does he say? Look at what he says. Verse six, we start talking about this realized reality. Verse six, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. I love it. Here Paul is saying, now he does it in reverse order than he does in other places. He is saying, look, being a son is very, uh, very important, but God does something else to help you experience the reality of that sonship. And that is that he puts the spirit of the son, his son, in your heart. In other words, that place in you that is the driver of your thoughts and emotions, that's where the Holy Spirit lives. Why? So that you can enact the reality of all that stuff you know up here about who Jesus is and what he's done for you. The spirit comes in our heart and makes this experiential rather than theoretical. That's what he does. Now, sometimes people say, well, wait a second. Sometimes Paul talks about having the spirit come into our hearts and then our enjoyment of sonship. And here he talks about our sonship and then the work of the spirit in our hearts, which is it? And the answer is yes. I, I like the, the, the word that they are uh, co-current, co I think is the word. In other words, they happen at the same time. They happen together at the same time. And so you can talk about it either way. Paul is talking about this and he said, look, you, this is the reality. Now he's already told the Galatians, don't you remember when the spirit worked in you? Don't you remember when that happened? Don't, don't you remember? And, and obviously the Galatians, when they came to faith in Jesus Christ, Christ had an outpouring of the Holy Spirit. They had an extemporaneous experience that was, uh, that was very memorable. And Paul can say, did you receive the Spirit by, work, by uh, faith or by works of the flesh? And the answer is, it was by faith. But now he's saying, look, why does the Spirit come in here? It comes in to change the way our heart is thinking. Uh, Paul says it a different way in Romans. I always like to let Paul comment on himself. In Romans chapter 8, uh, verse, uh, where do we start? Let's start in verse 14. 8.14, Romans 8.14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God 
are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we might be glorified with him. I love it. Paul is saying in both places, look, as someone who has believed in Jesus Christ, there is a new spiritual reality. It is the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of the Son. And I love the Trinitarian nature of that. God sends the Son, the Spirit of the Son comes into our heart. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, all at work in our understanding and experience of salvation. And he says he comes, I love the way he says it in Romans 8, because he communicates with our spirit that we are sons of God. I, I like that. I, I, Paul is saying there should be a dialogue in your heart. And in, in my spirit, I'm saying I don't feel much like a son. I don't feel very much like a kid of God. You know, I'm not so sure I belong. And the Holy Spirit is saying, oh, yes, you do. Oh, yes, you do. It, and this is great. Just this uh, last week, I had the privilege today, just side note, don't sing happy birthday to her because she's not here and she won't watch this for a long time probably. But my mother is 81 years old today. Praise God. Very thankful. And this week, I happened to be in South Carolina for something else, for ministry, and I snuck up to Spartanburg, took her out for her birthday. And uh, my younger brother and sister came over. We had cake. We had just had a big dinner, but we had cake anyway, right? Because that's what you do. And that's why all, all South Carolinians have type 2 diabetes. Um, <laughs> and uh, I'm a little closer after this week myself. And uh, anyway, we had cake. And my, and my younger brother and sister, we were telling old family stories, right? You know how it is. I'm a middle child. My sister is the only girl my younger brother is the baby. And so we're, we're telling stories about times that we more or less felt like we were an important part of the family. You know, the time we broke that figurine, the time my older brother and I took one of the doors completely off the hinges. You have to demonstrate tackling in the appropriate way, right? You know, uh, the times that I didn't clean uh, the way my mother had invited me to clean, all of these things. And and, uh, and we were telling stories, and as we are wont to do when we get together with our siblings, we exaggerated uh, both uh, the things we did and the negative implications that it had in our family. And, and really what we're saying is we're telling stories about times we didn't really feel like we were all that appreciated in our family, you know. And eventually my mom, who we were there supposedly to honor, but we're completely ignoring in all these stories... She said, I think y'all are exaggerating. Y'all weren't that bad. You know, I, I, I love all of y'all. And I love that. That was her spirit communicating with our spirit. You know, y'all all are special and you belong. Not one of you is more special than another. Even though I secretly know if there is one, it's my sister. <laughs> Do you know why? Because she does not mention my mother in her sermons. She does <laughs> You're sitting there, wait, does she preach sermons? No. <laughs> but if she did, spiritually speaking, I think we talk ourselves out of the enjoyment of the redemption and sonship or, or childness of being a child of God. We're always saying, well, I can't really be one of those today because of that thing I said that was so hurtful or that lie I told 
or that person I passed by who needed my help or my bitterness and anger in my heart toward that person who wronged me. And we say to ourselves, how could I be a kid of God? And the Spirit says, because of Jesus, and you are. He brings it home to our heart. I love it. Here in the text, it says that he enables us to cry out, Abba, Father. Now, look, Paul did not need to put in here or in Romans chapter 8, both Abba and Father. They mean the same thing. And I know some of you have heard that it is like a baby saying, Daddy. But do you know that in the Jewish world, even at the death of a father, they still referred to him as Abba. It wasn't just baby talk. It was a term of family. I handed my mother a birthday card and it said, Mom. My sister, who again, if there was a favorite, her said, Mama. What does that tell you? It tells you that's, that's why she's getting all my mom's stuff, right? <laughs> because my sister is older. She's only a few years younger than I am. She still communicates with great affection with the same term she used when she was a kid. Because while she may have grown, the intimacy has only grown stronger, not weaker. When we say Abba, we are talking about how close we feel with God. The Spirit enables us to experience that. And of course, that can come at very difficult times. Jesus, in Mark chapter 12, 14, when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. Do you hear that? He uses this term of affection. He recognizes the difficulty of what he's about to face. He says, if there is any way for this to be done, another way may it be done, but I want what you want. You see, most people believe that the reason Paul and the early church used Abba and Father is because they were basically remembering and mimicking the closeness that Jesus had with the Father and the closeness that Jesus said was supposed to be a reality of people who follow him. He said, when you pray this way, you pray our Father who art in heaven, Abba who is in heaven. You know, there are old, very, uh, very formal Christians who whenever they would do that, they actually had a liturgical line that said, we dare to say, Father, who art in heaven. You see, this is so close, so intimate, that it takes the Holy Spirit to remind us that that's exactly who we are. Now, there's a song. I, I, I really don't like the whole song, but I like one line of the song. I, I told a group that Karen and I were working with uh, this this week and then they ended up playing that song right after my talk. I'm like, I don't like the whole song, but I like this line in the song. There's a Hillsong song uh, that uh, talks about being a child of God. I'm chosen, not forsaken. I'm not, I'm not, if you like that song, that's great. Just not my favorite song. But I love this one line. It says, I'm a child of God. I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. Yes, that's probably not the right pitch. <laughs> I'm a child of God. Yes, I am. We might try to will ourselves to that experience, but Paul knows it takes the Holy Spirit in our hearts to give it to us. 
Now, I know we're Presbyterians, or actually in this church, one-fourth of you are Presbyterians. <laughs> it's cool. Welcome. We welcome everybody. I'm happy about that, you know. And we're uncomfortable with experience. But Paul wants every Christian to enjoy the full inheritance of the son and to stop living like a slave. And he says we'll do that when we mentally know the timely rescue that God has brought through Jesus Christ. But we will also know it when we are tuned into the work of the spirit in our hearts that says he is not a distant person who's angry with you, but he is your dad who loves you. He is Abba, Father. And that will change the way we live and talk to each other and interact if I know that I am loved with the passion of a perfect loving father, then I don't need everybody else to fill me up because I'm already full. Amen. Now, my wife has threatened me and she's very sweet. It wasn't a mean threat. It was a very kind threat. That if I keep mentioning my brand new granddaughter, that I'm going to have to start putting money into her college fund every time I mention her. You know, she's so smart already at 10 weeks that she's going to need a lot, right? You know, brilliant 10-week-old child, almost 11-week-old child. But you know what I've been reminded of over the last 11 weeks having a granddaughter? There is a kind of love that will blow up your heart. I can't explain it. I, I know I had it when my kids were little, you know, but I go and see this little child who, who can't talk, can't, I mean, I stare at videos of her just doing this <laughs> over and over again. And when I got to be with her last week for her baptism, which I was so excited about, and I got to spend time with her, I honestly felt like crying the whole time. Why? Because my heart, it's like somebody took a love pump and was just jumping up and down on it. And my heart was growing bigger and bigger. I mean, bigger than the Grinches at the end of that story. And it was getting bigger because this kid is so precious. And let me tell you, I'm a terrible father and grandfather compared to the perfection of God the Father. See, God is infinitely and perfectly gracious and merciful. I am so incompletely gracious and merciful. God is so long-suffering. I am so impatient. But if a fallen person like me could experience the heartbreaking love for another human being, how much do you think God loves you? Amen. The Spirit wants you to know that. And so the Spirit is calling in you so that you can cry out. That word is a loud cry. So that you can say, you're my dad. Thank you. I love you. And we can live out of that instead of that fear of not living up to those elementary principles. May God give us grace to experience that work of the Spirit in our hearts. To connect the rescue we know in our head and the experience of being a realized child of God in our heart. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you. We thank you for how kind you are to us. Lord, I jump up and down to remind myself 
that I'm not an unloved or unwanted child, but that in the fullness of time, you sent your son to rescue a sinner like me, to redeem me, to make me your child. But I still need your spirit working in me, speaking to my spirit and reminding me that you are not distant but close, that you are not uh, unfavorable toward me, but you are infinitely loving, gracious, and merciful toward me. Lord Spirit, please move in our hearts that we might cry out, not once, but every day, all day, Abba, Father, knowing that you welcome us as your children, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.